Welcome to The Teaching Curve, a podcast exploring the pedagogy of global politics and international relations, produced under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative of the International Studies Association and made available through ISA's Professional Resource Center. I'm Jamie Free, Associate Provost and Professor of Global Politics at Bridgewater College. Each episode of The Teaching Curve is a conversation with a thoughtful and innovative teacher of international studies. The goal is to celebrate and inspire pedagogical creativity by showcasing instructors who build their courses to address not just the material, but the ways in which the material is best understood by the students in those courses. Actively connecting students to material requires more than just a deep understanding of the content. Empathizing with how a diverse spectrum of students can misunderstand what we all understand so well is the first step to inventing mechanisms by which students can go beyond remembering to ownership, application, and their own creativity. Today's conversation is with Victor Assal, Professor of Political Science at the University at Albany, part of the State University of New York system. In addition to his research on the use of violence by non-state actors and how states discriminate against groups within their borders, Victor has long been a leading voice promoting the use of games, simulations, and non-traditional exercises in political science and international relations pedagogy. In July, after six years of service, Victor will step down as editor-in-chief the Journal of Political Science Education. Today's conversation covers the increasing acceptance of pedagogical research in political science and international relations disciplines, why instructors should consider games, simulations, and non-traditional exercises to teach concepts and theories of global politics, and tried and true activities from Victor's own courses. Victor Assal, welcome to The Teaching Curve. I'm really happy to have you here and to be able to talk about all the work that you've been doing on pedagogy for the last Two decades, really. Oh, now you're making me feel old, Jamie. Thanks a lot, <laughs> uh, but thank you. I, I look forward to talking. So you're at the University at Albany, which is part of the State University of New York system. Uh, but can you tell me a little bit about that? I always start these things off by having people tell me a little bit about their students, because those are the people that really make us teachers. So tell me about the students at Albany. So one of the things I really, really like about UAlbany is that it is an extraordinarily diverse population of students. Uh, we are a public university. Uh, we are an R1 um, and we are a university that tracks students from all over New York State, from, but also from all over the world. We have a lot of students from outside of the United States. Uh, but one of the other really positive things is socio-demographically, we're very diverse. Uh, we have a lot of students from different socioeconomic classes and we are very diverse uh, racially and ethnically as well. So the classes that I teach are really made up of uh, very diverse people. And I think that um, one of the things that you want students to do in college is to learn about the world and see different perspectives. And if you're in a college where 98% of the students are of one type, that doesn't help as much. But when you're in a uh, class with people who've lived very different life experiences, uh, that can be very helpful for learning and hearing about those different life experiences. Tell us kind of the areas that you are researching and teaching right now. What kinds of courses, what kinds of topics are are you teaching about? So in terms of research, I have three main areas of research, one of which when I was starting out, I was told not to admit to, 
but uh, I'm a full professor now. I can say whatever I want. Amen. Uh, so one area of research was political discrimination. One area of research is political discrimination against ethnic groups, against women, and recently against LGBTQ uh, people. And I collect data and do analysis cross-nationally for the factors that impact uh, why these groups are discriminated against and oppressed in some countries and less so in others. Mm. My other area of research is political violence. And specifically, I focus on violent non-state actors. Now, and this is highly appropriate, the category that I wasn't supposed to admit to was uh, a lot of research on pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have felt uh, from my start as an educator that learning how to teach well and sharing that knowledge is extraordinarily important. And I like looking at it and, and researching it. So that is my third area of research. So I'm interested in this because, I mean, I think many of the people listening to this podcast have had the same experience. Uh, so you, you kind of um, glossed over who was telling you this, like who tells you not to focus on pedagogy uh, and and well, why did clear. you? So as 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 my friend Jamie pointed out, I've been a professor now for around four thousand years. Uh, so the people in my department now are, are not saying that. But when I first came in, um, there were a couple of senior professors who made it clear to me that I could hurt myself if I mm. was you know it wasn't doing wasn't producing regular articles and was waste, were wasting my time producing uh, teaching articles. Mm -hmm. Now, I haven't heard that in a while, but I have talked to other people at conferences who are still hearing that. Well, and, and one of your roles is as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Political Science Education, which comes out of the APSA. I'm interested in your take on whether that transition from people telling you not to focus on pedagogy up to kind of more accepting it. Do you think that's unique to you or do you think that's a larger trend in the disciplines? I think uh, it's getting better. I think there are still people out there who are biased against pedagogy research and think you should be researching non-pedagogical questions. But my my experience um, tells me that it's 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 much better than it was 20 years ago. I'm assuming, Jamie, you have a, a you can relate to that change. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in terms of now, I've ended up at my career at an, a teaching intensive institution. And so there was never kind of whispers in my ear like this won't help you. But in terms of going to conferences and being out in the larger conversation, right. I've definitely felt over the last couple of years that I've been focusing on pedagogy as my kind of disciplinary identity, I've definitely felt that it is more accepting and people it, wanting to have those conversations, even if that's not their main area of research focus. Yes. And I think that's a that's a tremendous improvement for the for the field. Uh, and I think that's something that's been developing over the last uh, number of years in a positive way. Uh, again, there are still people who think that it's a waste of time. But there are fewer people who think that it's a waste of time. And mm -hmm. I think that's a that's a very useful development. Right. So in that division of labor that you had uh, between your three kind of research topics and um, the 
pedagogy one is one that you're actually experimenting with in some ways, right? I mean, that's you're collecting data, but it's not just from non-state actors out there in the world. It would be fascinating if a non-state actor uh, terrorist organization was teaching me pedagogy, but that hasn't happened yet, Jamie. <laughs> Maybe in the future, but but not yet. Uh, so yes, um, so there are different areas of uh, pedagogical research, uh, and my main focus has been instructional. Okay, and I think all the areas are useful, but what I focus on is writing up articles that highlight how to use an exercise or a game and lay out how to do that. So in the Journal of Political Science Education, such an article would go for the instructional section. Now, there is also a section in the Journal of Political Science Education called the Science of, Te of Teaching and Learning, uh, where in that section, not only are you supposed to talk about what you're something you're doing pedagogically, but you need to have a either quantitative or qualitative analysis of the effectiveness of that. Now, I think that's very important, um, but one of the issues is uh, the challenges that, I mean, you gotta do an IRB and you gotta collect enough data. And uh, it really depends upon how many balls you have in the air in terms of which of these directions makes the most sense. And tell us what, what are the other two sections? Oh, no, I'm going to charge you money, Jamie, for, for telling me <laughs> what the other two sections are. So we have a reflection section where people will reflect on various uh, components of their experience in teaching. Uh, and that can be very interesting as well. And then we have another section uh, where people review books or uh, games or other things that are on the market related to teaching political science to give people insight into whether something is, whether a, a pedagogical book or a um, new textbook on comparative politics is something they might want to be using. Hmm. Uh, or all of that game is something they, that, that's being sold is something they might want to use. So tell me how you then decided what was your path to kind of spending your time and energy to become a better teacher? How did you get there? So, well, I mean, I've always been interested in doing a good job. One of the things that really connected me to the idea of, boy, we should really bring games into the classroom was I played the game diplomacy. And I played this game and I said to myself, wow, Anybody who plays this game would understand realism a thousand times better. And that led me into thinking about how you could use experience. And what I tell students mm. who take my class, I said, in my class, and you'll like this, Jamie, I said, in my class, you'll get to kill your classmates. <laughs> and uh, they don't really kill their classmates because then I wouldn't uh, be still teaching. But... Um, what I found is it's one thing to read about something. It's one thing to discuss it. But even if you can artificially experience it for a little bit, I've had many students come to me and say, Professor Saul, I saw things. You know, I understood why people do what they do in a way that I, I didn't when I was just reading it. Because I put them in the situation of having to make tough decisions. Mm -hmm. And that can be very eye opening. Yeah. So 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about the logistics of this? And I know you spent a lot of time doing uh, experimenting with different ways to to run these things. Do you have lessons that you would say to somebody who thinks that sounds great, but doesn't know how to get break out of the lecture mode of teaching? So, Jamie, if you're comfortable, I can give you um, I can give you two examples. That'd be great. Okay. So I have one exercise where, and I usually do this in the first day of my intro to world politics class. Um, everybody gets a playing card. And uh, if they have a playing card at the end of class, they get a half grade bonus on the first quiz. Now, if you wish, you can attack your fellow classmates um, and challenge them uh, and you will play rock, paper, scissors. And if you beat them at rock, paper, scissors, you take all their cards and they're dead. Now, for a short period of time, the well of souls is open. You can come to Professor Asal. He will give you a new card and you're reborn. But at a certain point, the well of souls will close. And um, if you are killed and all your cards are taken from you, you're dead. Sit down. Stand up. So, uh, Jamie, what do you think the students do? Well, I think that there's probably groups of students who like hold on to their card. No, the and then, vast majority of students start killing each other. Really? There are a couple that hide, but for the most part, they start killing each other and killing and killing and killing. And uh, when I get down to um, four or five students who are still alive, and occasionally there are two or three that hide, and occasionally I'll have some, you know, a larger group that, that doesn't want to fight, but for the most part. And I say, hold on a second, guys. And I ask the students who are still alive, what's the point of the game? And invariably, Jamie, one of them will say to get the most cards. Mm. And then I ask the dead students, what's the point of the game? And they say to stay alive. And I say, what's the best strategy? And somebody will say, uh, not to play. And then I'll say, I'm sorry. People, did I tell any of you, quoting from Highlander, there can be only one? And you can see this look on their faces like, oh, we didn't need to kill anybody. Yeah. And then I show them um, quotes from Hobbes, that people are scum and will fight to get power. <laughs> and all of a sudden... Hobbes's argument makes a lot more sense, right? And when we talk about realism and we talk about realism versus neorealism, realism talks about human nature, whereas re neorealism is talking about the system and, and competition. Um, the Hobbes game really illustrates to them how human nature can impact behavior in terms of people wanting more and more and more, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one example. Um, another example that I have is um, in comparative politics, I, I'll actually give you uh, two more examples. It's called uh, the running game. Okay, and I teach a class of 100, 150 students, and everybody goes to the back of the room. And I say, okay, people, uh, we're going to play a game, and, the f and I'm going to add rules, and you can sit down if you don't want to run, okay? Uh, but if you do run and you're one of the first five people to touch the whiteboard, uh, you get a half grade bonus on the next quiz. So does anybody want to sit down? And there are a couple of students who just sit down. 
I said, okay, next rule. You 20 students, I like you better than everybody else. So go come stand in the middle. And a whole bunch of students in the back don't like that idea. So, so you know, a bunch of them, some of them still stay because, you know. And then of the 20 students in, in the middle of the room, I say, and you three students, I like you better. So come stand near the front of the room. Not fair, so not fair. And a bunch of students sit down. And I say, okay, anybody still want to sit down? No. I said, okay, now people, I have one more rule. If you run and you lose, you get a half grade minus on the next quiz. And almost, there are always five or six students who will not sit down, but a huge swath of the students sit down. We have the race, everybody sits down. Professor saw that's so unfair, that's so wrong. I mean, how could you do that? So really, so, so what do you think that's like? We don't, I mean, what are you talking about, Professor Assal? I said, well, let me ask you guys a question. You're here at a state school. Were any of you accepted to a fancy private school? And a bunch of students raised their hand. So why didn't you go to the fancy private school? Well, Professor Assal, we couldn't afford it. Oh, I see. And, but there are a bunch of people who can afford it, right? Uh, yes. And I say, now, do you understand what that game is about? <laughs> Inequality, Yep. right? And, and money. Uh, and so, yes, so, so they get it. So that's another example. And then uh, I have another, uh, and this I don't use in my intro to world politics class. This I use in my uh, political violence class and my ethnic conflict class. And uh, Jamie, if you ever use this, it's very important. The first thing you do is you say, look, I'm only gonna call on people who raise their hand. If you don't raise your hand, I'm not gonna call on you. And I'll explain why we finish when we finish talking, why that's the case. Right. And I say, okay, now what I want to do, people, is I want you to write down your five top identities that make you part of a larger group. Okay, it's got to make you part of a larger group. So mm -hmm. it could be ethnicity, it could be religion, but it's got to be something that makes you part of. So they spend a little bit of time to write down their five top identities. And then I say, okay, now, people, what I want you to do is I want you to cross one off. If you had to give one up, which would it be? Cross mm -hmm. it off. Usually, you know, they're not too upset about that. And then I say, okay, now cross another one off. And they start getting uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then they're now they're down to three. And I say, cross another one off. And they say, well, Professor, you have to. And they get down to two. And I say, okay, now get down to one. And I've always had a student saying, Professor Saul, I can't do that. I can't give up one of these identities. And I turn to them and I say, uh, imagine somebody put a gun to your head and you had to choose and just so you should know this happens in real life yeah so pick what you would choose if somebody put a gun to your head because it does happen in real life and they pick one okay so okay now people what we're going to do is i want you to look at all five and i want people to volunteer categories and we're going to write all the categories that people chose on the board and they're usually around 15 to 16 categories like um race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, religion, uh, sports fan, you know, there's always some weird ones. Uh, and then say, okay, now people, and I say, I'm gonna take a total of how many people wrote down and we have that and say, now what I'm gonna do people is if no one raises their hand and says they picked this category as the one they refuse to give up, I'm gonna cross it off. And I say, guys, why, why these top categories? And we have a very interesting conversation about why those top categories, what are the reasons why? 
And then I say, now what we're going to do is I'm going to share a story that has shaped my identity. And then I want you people to share stories that shaped your identity. And so I share a story of my own. Okay. Um, I, let's just say um, I, I was beat up for being Jewish. And then the students share their stories and you can see other students' eyes opening wide when they, and I've had lots of students come to me after class and say, Professor Saul, I didn't realize that women were still treated like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that black people were still treated. And, and they, they're hearing life experiences that they just would not hear otherwise. Right. Now, the reason why you should never ever point to somebody and say, Jamie, what did you write down? Mm-hmm. Is because there's stuff they write down that they're not willing to share. So I've had several students who are LGBTQ, but haven't been come out yet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you never force anybody to share. They have to raise their hand and share. But it's an extremely powerful exercise, which I follow by previously having asked them to bring poems or songs uh, that they feel that they identify with strongly and then meet in groups discussing the different poems and songs that they feel really capture who they are. And so these are three examples of games and exercises that I use in class. And what I like about all three examples is there's no real prep time to those. There's no investment in special equipment except for a deck of cards. You know, it's something that anybody would have access to and be able to use. I mean, and the time commitment on those obviously varies significantly, right? Um, But I can see that as things that would uh, provide frameworks for getting then into, here's a connection that let's talk, let's unpack this and think about it from an academic perspective. Right. And I've heard, like I said, I've heard from a lot of students that being able to apply the theories to something they've just experienced uh, and they can discuss with their classmates mm-hmm. um, can, is, is very helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me give you another example. I created an exercise bowling for extra credit. People get, uh, I put a box at the front of the room. And if you get a crumpled up piece of paper in the box, uh, you get 10 extra credit points. Okay. Um, and I have 12 volunteers and three of them stand in the back, three of them stand in the middle and three of them stand right next to the box. And the ones all the way in the back, once in a blue moon, somebody gets it in, but usually not. Mm-hmm. The ones in the middle, every so often though. And once in the blue moon, the people in the front, one of them just can't know how to throw, doesn't know how to throw and doesn't get it in. Right. Okay. And so structure, right? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Is there any way that these games factor into assessment or do you feel like it's a, it's a, instructional tool, um, how do they factor into how you assess the class? So the way they factor into it on quizzes and on the midterm and the final, I will sometimes have questions where they need to apply a theory or two theories to an exercise we did in class Mm. to explain how these theories would explain that exercise and then explain which theory does a better job and why. Mm -hmm. And so that can be a very effective um 
assessment tool. Sure. It requires them to dig deeper than just, you know, I mean, they, re they remember those things because they're memorable. They're not a typical classroom experience, but then they have to really yes. dig into it and analyze it. Mm -hmm. That's good. Well, Victor, thank you so much for sharing that. That's a, a lot of accumulated wisdom about these things. And I know it's stimulating creativity all over the place out there in the, in the interwebs for, uh, so thanks. Thanks for helping us understand that. Thank you. Teaching Curve Podcast is made available through the International Studies Association Professional Resource Center under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative. You can send feedback or suggestions for future interviews to teachingcurve at isonet.org. And please follow us on Twitter at teachingcurve. I hope to see many of you at the Innovative Pedagogy Conference in Nashville and at all the panels and roundtables that have to do with pedagogy as part of the main conference. Thanks again for listening to The Teaching Curve, and remember, learn something every time you teach.